History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Ryan Weir, and I'm here in the HHE studio with the eco-warrior to my litter bug. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Hello, Ryan. How are you doing? I am excellent, Peter. I'm super looking forward to this episode. Oh, me too, me too. Spring is in the air, and we're ready for a fantastic, fun Papua New Guinean treat. Exactly right. Now, last week, Peter, the Dursalator tasked you with finding interesting and unexpected stories about green in Papua New Guinea in the 21st century, an episode which I freely admit made me green with envy. So tell me, what can an average listener expect to hear about over the remaining 58 minutes of the show? Well, today, Ryan, we're headed to east to the Pacific Ocean to an island nation in the throes of change. It's a land of lush tropical forests. It's home to exotic flora and fauna, some of it toxic. We're going to meet the cannibals who are afflicted by the laughing death we're going to meet a bird whose plumes put fashionistas into a frenzy and we're going to meet a man who trekked into the jungle to witness the death of a language welcome to the land of a thousand cultures welcome to papua new guinea so why don't we start first and orient me where the heck is Papua New Guinea? Well, officially it's the independent state of Papua New Guinea and it's often contracted to PNG. People often call it PNG if they're, you know, pals with the country. It's a collection of islands in Oceania. It comprises the eastern half of the island of New Guinea. So New Guinea is quite a big island and the eastern half is Papua New Guinea. The western half is actually part of Indonesia. And it's also half of the island of New Guinea and a bunch of offshore islands in the area known as Melanesia. So to orient you, if you start in Australia and go north, you're going to hit a big island that on the back looks cut in half as I say it looks kind of like a bird it always reminds me of a turkey and in fact the southeastern end of the island is known as the bird's tail so does that help you understand where you are? I'm interested to know if it's made of papier mache oh my lord no it's made of it is made of wood though I suppose so arguably yes <laughs> yeah. in fact the main island is the second largest island in the world after Greenland Really? Yeah, surprising. I had no idea it was that big. It's a big old place. I thought it was tiny. Partly because it's near Australia, I suspect, which is even bigger. But as a place, it is mostly mountainous. It's covered with lush rainforest. In fact, 70% of the country is forested, and it comprises the world's third largest rainforest as well. Wait a minute. So you pick the colour green, and 70% of the country is woodland? Yes, I was quite lucky, slash strategic in my choice. And uh, <laughs> it will not surprise you to learn this green area is also hot and wet. But if you want to find snow, you can go up a mountain high enough. You will find a bit of snow as well. Size-wise, we're looking at 462,000 square kilometres, or 78,000 square miles. That is not far off being a France. It's, France is actually about 20% bigger than Papua New Guinea. So if I was to cut France off and float it out into the Atlantic, it would be like a Papua New Guinea. Yeah, a little bit bigger than a Papua New Guinea would therefore, I suppose, be itself the second largest island. But um, wow. where it is different between France and Papua New Guinea is population. France is 20% bigger but France has 68 million people but Papua New Guinea has 9.5 million people. So much, much more sparsely populated. Uh, it has a capital city called Port Moresby. This is named after a man called Captain John Moresby who was the first European arriving in the area in 1873 and mm -hmm. you will not be surprised to learn that this is a developing economy. So agriculture mm. gives a livelihood to about 85% of the population provides about 30% of the GDP. Someone's got to maintain that forest. Somebody's got to keep up the greenery, haven't they? Uh, but there's also mineral deposits there. It's got gold, oil and copper, and that itself accounts for 72% of export earnings. So not a developed economy by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. The currency is the Kina, K-I-N-A. And although we've previously mentioned this, they, they did used to use seashells as currency, but seashells were abolished as a currency in 1933. Uh, the flag, there's a flag. Obviously, there's a flag. This was adopted on the 1st of July 1971 and its background is uh, black and red halved diagonally across and the black section on the hoist side that has five white stars representing the constellation the Southern Cross which I think is the same constellation 
shown on the Australian flag as well, I think. The red section on the right-hand side, that's got a gold image of a bird of paradise in silhouette. This is a dramatic flag. It's an impressive-looking flag. It's got a lot of bold colours, and the flag design, in fact, was chosen through a nationwide competition. This was in 1971. The winning designer was a lady called Susan Carrique, or Carrick, uh, and she was just 15 years old at the time. I like that. That's awesome, isn't it? More young. We should <laughs> give the flags to all young people to design. I think so. They, you end up with much more striking results, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Now, the national anthem I know you're going to be interested in is called Oh, Arise, All You Sons. And it sounds a little bit like this. Punchy, isn't it? It's punchy. I like it. This was adopted in 1975 when Papua New Guinea became independent. Written and composed by Thomas Shacklady. Was he 15 years old? I think he was a little bit older because I think he was the bandmaster for the Papua New Guinean constabulary, if I remember rightly. And it's lyrically, it's quite interesting because it uses the words Papua New Guinea a lot more than most national anthems do. The final verse goes, Shout again for the whole world to hear. Papua New Guinea, we're independent and we're free. Papua New Guinea. Oh, yeah. That short, sweet, punchy, to the point. I love it. I liked it. 10 out of 10. Uh, now, things Papua New Guinea is famous for. Well, first and foremost, nature. Nature is all over the place, which is really handy, as you pointed out, for a green episode. In particular, <laughs> yeah. the bird of paradise, which we're going to meet a little bit later as well. It's also well known, though, for coffee and also languages. Now, here's the thing. This country, as we said, has not many people, about 10 million people, which is more or less similar to Greater London as a city. That's the whole country of Papua New Guinea. <laughs> oh, wow. OK. Uh, it has official languages, English, Tokpisin, Hirimutu and Papua New Guinean sign language. Tokpisin of those is actually an English-derived Creole. So it, it, when you hear it, you recognise a lot of the words, but a lot of it you can't understand quite what's happening, but you keep recognising words. So in Tokpisin, the country's name is Independent State Belong Papua New Guinea. Yeah, that sounded familiar. Exactly. And what's your name is? Wane Nem Belong You. Again, I recognise part of that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You just kind of go, I feel like I should have understood that, and yet I didn't. Yeah. But famously, the country is also home to over 800 different languages. 800? 10 million people, 800 different languages. Wow. And this is one of the most, if not the most, linguistically diverse places in the world. I guess it's, it depends on how you separate languages, right? No, these are languages, though. These are proper languages. It's famously extremely diverse in, in languages. But of course, yes, some people would debate about what's the difference between a language and a dialect. Still a lot, though, isn't it? That's a heck of a lot for a little place like that. But we're going to talk more about languages later, so uh, we can come back to this. Other things it's known for internally is, unfortunately, sorcery. Tribal life and tradition are still going strong, and they do have an issue with accusations of sorcery that result in violence and possibly even murder. That doesn't sound like sorcery at all. That just sounds like violence. <laughs> Well, no, it's the, this is the problem. The problem isn't that they have a lot of sorcery. The problem is they have accusations of sorcery that result in violence against the accused sorcerer. Oh, I see. Okay. So if somebody falls ill, you blame your neighbour and you attack your neighbour because you say, ah, he's cast a spell on me and made me sick. That sounds a lot like the witchcraft trials. Very, very similar. In fact, it was only 2013 when a law that allowed you to, as a defence for murder, say, well, I think they were a sorcerer. That was a legitimate defence until 2013. That's quite recent, isn't it? It's very recent and it's a current and known problem in the country. There's a sorcery and witchcraft accusation related national action plan, SNAP, which was approved by the government in 2015 to try and tackle this. And around the country, there's various efforts being made to tackle this problem of sorcery accusations and subsequent violence. That's quite extraordinary. How awful for the people. It's really unfortunate, but uh, let's move on to something brighter and talk about cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. In some tribes, and notably the Foray people, F-O-R-E, this tribe had a particular funeral custom. They thought it was bad to allow a human body to be consumed by maggots. And consequently, they developed a cultural practice where the relatives would eat the body of the deceased person. Right. It's unusual, isn't it? I, I, I'm not, I don't know whether it has happened anywhere else, but certainly it was this one tribe or one or two tribes in Papua New Guinea. This is known as endocannibalism as opposed to exocannibalism, mm. which is eating your enemies. But the problem that came with this was eating humans carries a significant health risk. So the people of this village started to experience a strange disease, which they call Kuru or the Laughing Death. Okay. So what would happen is these people would start having physical problems like shaking and tremors and things. 
But then they also have difficulty controlling their emotions and they exhibit bouts of this crazed laughter, which gives the laughing death its name. And this is a, a disease that nobody but everyone was dying of. It was a very serious problem. So some scientists trek to the jungle and try and find out what's going on. And they're trying to trace the transmission of this disease. And they eventually realised that the disease was actually being caused by eating the brains of deceased people. And in fact, it's a disease similar to Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which you may be familiar with through its name, mad cow disease. Oh, OK. Yeah, we had big outbreak in that, didn't we, in England during the, what, the 80s, 90s? Exactly. And that was caused by the consumption of infected material from cows. So this disease, it's not caused by bacteria, nor is it caused by a virus. It's actually a prion disease. So this is a kind of protein that causes all sorts of problems in the brain. And eventually the scientists realised this was what was causing the problem. And it was actually this culture of cannibalising the dead and this funeral custom. So in the 1960s, the tribe stopped their practice of funerary cannibalism. But one of the problems they had was this disease has an extremely long shelf life in a person. So it actually took essentially a generation of people to die out before the disease itself did. So it was only in 2010, in the 21st century, that there were no more deaths from Kuru in Papua New Guinea. Wow. Do not eat human brains is the lesson learned. I'll stop doing that then. Good on you. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. What's that dinner party game where you're going to have an imaginary dinner party and you have to pick a bunch of famous people to have a dinner party with? The dinner party game? Yeah, that's it. Why do you want to know? Do you want us to play? Because I've always thought I'd have Heather Graham and Halle Berry. And... No, 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 no. I was thinking of who I would invite to my Papua New Guinean dinner party. What? Yeah, if I was going to have a dinner party in Papua New Guinea, I'd want to make sure I invited the best people for dinner. Okay, random, but all right. So first, I'd invite that science guy who sticks his tongue out all the time. Albert Einstein? Yeah, and the robot man with his black hole. Stephen Hawking? And the guy who had an apple fall on his head. Isaac Newton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, i got to say, Ryan, those are some really good guests. Guests? Yeah, it sounds like you'd have a fascinating evening talking about all their discoveries and science and the wonders of the universe. What? No, 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 no. No, they're not guests. What, what do you mean? Well, if I'm having a dinner party in Papua New Guinea, then I'd want to serve a delicious meal. And those three have the biggest brains. So... Ryan, actually, that makes a lot of sense. All right, well, that's all fascinating, Peter. But tell me about the history, because I don't know nothing about Papua New Guinea. Where'd they start? Where'd they come from? Well, I've got good news for you, Ryan. You're not going to know a lot more at the end of this, I'll be honest with you, but let's give it a go. Okay. So about 60,000 years ago, depending on exactly which side of the anthropological debate you're on, early man arrived in Papua New Guinea, probably from Southeast Asia, we think. Okay. So these guys, they hunted, they gathered, they lived in tribes. And mind-blowingly, that's pretty much it until the arrival of the Europeans in more or less the 16th century. What, nothing else happened? Chinese and Malay people probably came, probably took slaves, probably invaded, probably did some trading. But the hmm. tribes were using bone, wood and stone tools right up until the Europeans arrived and uh, did what we normally do, which you're about to learn about. OK, 16th century, let's go! Okay, 1526 to 1527, we're not sure when somebody spotted the place and those people were... Portuguese! George de Menezes is credited with naming the island Papua, which is after a Malay word for the frizziness of the people's hair. Oh, really? Yeah, apparently the New Guinea, though, was added by a Spaniard called Inigo Ortiz de Retes in 1545, apparently because he thought the island's inhabitants looked a bit like the people from the African Guinea coast. Oh, so nothing to do with the gold coin, the Guinea? No, no, just uh, uh, these people look a bit like those people, so let's just lump them in. <laughs> right Not very discriminating, but there it is. So even then, there's not a lot in the way of European settlement for another 200 years. The Dutch arrived. They claimed the western half of the island as part of the Dutch East Indies in 1828. I mean, presumably they're pretty terrified of all the cannibals on the island. Yeah, I think they land and go, this is ours and don't really do much with it. There's not much in the way of development. In the 1880s, Germany began settlements in the north. That triggered the British to declare a British protectorate in the southern coast of New Guinea, which they called British New Guinea. Okay. 
you mentioned Germany there. You don't often hear about Germany in this period. Like often it's Portuguese, Spanish, British, Dutch, but you don't often hear Germany in that group. That's true. Yeah, that is quite unusual, isn't it? I, I don't know. Hmm. I, I assume they didn't do too well. Well, in fact, I can tell you why they didn't do too well, because the German Empire obviously took over the portion of the country in 1884. But then hmm. in the early 20th century, in 1914, First World War happens and the Germans lose. And at that point, they lose their control over any of that part of the island and the island gets given to Australia as a trusteeship over New Guinea. Why is that? Why is it given to Australia? Yeah. Prior to that, Australia actually was formally administrating the British part of Papua New Guinea. So it was really just the completion of the allocation of that half of the island to Australia. Okay. But that was because Australia as a Commonwealth region was taking care of New Guinea already in the British section. So it was really just an expansion of that. Right. They didn't get keys thrown at them with a note saying, gone shopping, look after the kids. (laughs) Look after the island. There's milk in the fridge, cannibals in the highlands. <laughs> so yes uh, 1921 the league of nations gives australia the trusteeship and then more excitement comes in world war ii as it frequently does when the japanese invaded particularly one notable if- event was they landed on the se- the north side of the tail of the island and they pushed down towards port moresby via the kokoda trail and there was a horrible battle where a relatively small band of plucky australian fighters kept the japanese from advancing on the capital for quite some time uh, and that included actually the recruitment of some local papuans who were asked to escort or stretcher wounded soldiers australian soldiers back to the base and this group of people became known as fuzzy wuzzy angels Right. That's a nice name. Did they choose that name? Well, Fuzzy Wuzzy was a a term had been previously used for native soldiers in the Sudan, I think. So Mm. I probably wouldn't call someone a Fuzzy Wuzzy today. No. But uh, they were very, very well respected. One soldier said they will make uh, him, being the soldier, as comfortable as possible, fetch him water and feed him food if available, regardless of their own needs. And no known injured soldier was ever abandoned by their Papuan escort, apparently. Well, good on them. Yeah, they did well. The war finished with the Allies victorious, obviously. Papua New Guinea remained under Australian governance for a long time, but it became self-governing on the 1st of December 1973 and achieved independence in 1975, the same year it joined the United Nations and it's been an independent country ever since. That's cool. That is a short history, isn't it? <laughs> like you say, it, is. it belies a history that's hidden without text, if you know what I mean. Exactly. I'd there love was to know a, some of the actual history. Clearly, stuff happened. Tribes warred. People lived and died. Heroes did heroic things. Villains mm. did terrible things. And we'll never know. We'll never know. Dang it. Never mind. We do have some things we know and I'll tell you about them after this. Hey, did you hear the news? What news? Well, only that the tribe just won a stirring victory over the people across the valley. Wow, that is great news. It is, isn't it? Apparently, the king gave this amazing, emotional, eloquent speech. Cool. And our warriors faced down overwhelming numbers. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know Dave? The guy who wrestled a whale shark and ate the whole thing. Well, he outflanked the enemy by swimming upriver and then emerged at the head of a column of crocodiles that he tamed and trained to fight by his side. Oh, that is incredible. I'd love to have seen that. I know, right? And this all happened during the greatest monsoon we've ever had. It did, and not only that, you you know the wise man, the guy who discovered nuclear energy? Well, of course. Well, he created a robot from vines and bark and leaves, and he unleashed it on the enemy. Wow! Yeah, it strode across the battlefield like a colossus, they say, scattering warriors in all directions. Wait, what are you doing? I'm writing this all down. People will want to know all this amazing stuff in the future. God, you are such a nerd. What? Oh, look at me. I'm writing everything down. Stop it. Oh, I love posterity. Posterity is important. Scribble, scribble. I'm just trying to chronicle all the incredible stories that have happened on oh, our I'm island. Just I'm just trying to chronicle all the incredible stuff. Fine. I won't write anything down ever again. Good. Nerd. All right, so what do we cover first, Pete? Okay, well, let's talk about green. Uh, Probably familiar with the colour, green. Colour of my eyes. Your beautiful green eyes, Ryan. Uh, (laughs) This is often the second stage colour to get a word in the evolution of language. So uh, we've talked before about how languages don't necessarily have a word for all the different colours, usually starting with black and white, most or if not all languages have. Mm -hmm. Red is then the next colour to get a word. And then yellow and green come in in the next stage, if you will. You'd thought green would have come in earlier, actually. You 
would, but it's kind of ubiquitous in Papua New Guinea, for sure. The Yelay language of Papua New Guinea just have black, white and red. They do without green completely. Oh. They, they refer to things by the colour of things that have that colour, right? So not unlike orange. They would say, oh, like palm tree coloured and things like that. It's not like they are oh, okay. incapable of dealing with the concept. But green is also, fortunately for a plucky podcaster, quite a metaphorical colour in many, many different ways. You have green meaning environmental going green, greenwashing. Absolutely. Save the planet. Save the planet, indeed. We also have green for jealousy, the green-eyed monster, green with envy. We also have green for innocence, naivety. Oh, he's really green, that guy's new. Yeah, we can't really say that, having done 70 episodes of this, can we? Can't use that as our excuse anymore. We are no longer green. We are seasoned podcasters. Uh, But what we're also not is green meaning money, which we are also not encountering too much. Uh, (laughs) To quote the great philosopher Hollywood Beyond in his 1986 hit, What's the Colour of Money? <laughs> that makes no sense. Red, because it's blood and it's money is murder and death. Oh, man, come on. Oh, Read in Lord. subtext. Subtext, Ryan. <laughs> and, of course, it's green for go. Uh, I'll give you a green for go fact. In 1920, William Potts made the first red, amber, green traffic light, which was installed at a crossroads in Detroit, Michigan. So he just came up with the idea? Uh, not exactly. The green and red have been used in other areas. This was the first three-colour traffic light to distinguish it from okay. previous, which had been two colours. The railroad history had, had previously been white for go, and I think it was green for wait and red for stop. So red's always been stop, but they found that the white colour caused problems with people mistaking them for stars or... Just looks like a light. Exactly, confusing it for other <laughs> yeah. things. So it transitioned yeah. from white to green, and I think that was part of that history. I'm surprised that blue isn't go. Blue could be go. I wonder if like if you've got if you're colorblind or something. I wonder if there's something in the physiology as well of why they choose those colors so that everybody can see them. Cuz you don't want like half the population or a quarter of the population not being able to tell what colors what. Yeah, that would be problematic, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's something for the verdict, I would say. Let's, Paul being famously colourblind, we'll uh, put it to him when oh, we yeah. talk to him next week. But meanwhile, let's give this podcast the green light and get started. Let's do it. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today at Spectrum Industries. I really love the incredible energy in this room. It represents the way we feel about colour. Spectrum has always been a place for people with big ambitions and big dreams. A place fueled with optimism to make a brighter, more colorful future. It inspires us in everything we create and we do. Now, we have a lot to talk about today, so I wanted to get started with a huge announcement. After a lot of speculation, I can finally reveal this year's product, and we know you're going to love it. We took yellow. You guys all know yellow, right? And we took good old blue, and you know what? We mixed them up. We mixed them up together, and we didn't stop until we had something unprecedented. Something which changes the game. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm proud to announce green. Want to describe the grass in springtime? Just say green. Want to celebrate the intense hue of your lover's eyes? Just say green. Want to proceed at a traffic light, but not sure when to go? That's right, green. It's simple. It's clean. It's green. Organic, natural, green is 100% sourced from environmentally friendly materials. Conversations become 12% more efficient as archaic expressions like melon-colored and shade of frog disappear from everyday talk. Green is the latest in a long line of Spectrum products that we are proud of. We think you will be too. And our competitors, well, we're pretty sure they'll be green with envy. 
Okay, Ryan, so our time period is the 21st century, which, given the history I just gave you, I'm pretty delighted that I chose. <laughs> yeah. But we've got the 21st century, which we're in right now. We're in it. It's happening now. It's getting longer uh, with every passing moment of this podcast. But it started, of course, on the 1st of January 2001, which is always a bit confusing to me. Yeah, wait, what? Why? Because 2000 is the last year of the 20th century, and 2001 is the first year of the 21st century. Why? Why? Because yeah. the first year isn't naught, it's one, right? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So t- the year 2000 wasn't in the 21st century? No, it's the end of the 20th century, really. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, I feel like such an idiot on this show. <laughs> No, it's it's very unintuitive and unsatisfying, isn't it? But uh, there it is. Yeah. It's already confusing like say, when we do the whole 1500s and the 16th century. It's, the whole thing's confusing. Yes, that's confusing too. The whole thing's a mess, isn't it? Let's start again and just give everything proper It needs proper a change. Numbers. Exactly. Yeah, sure. Or images. I'm in the year Image. fish. There you go. Done. <laughs> and you all know where you stand. It was the year fish. I remember it well. <laughs> But yeah, this is it. What's happening now? It's modern. It's very wow. It's very now. And uh, yes, it's a modern century, but we're going to discover in Papua New Guinea lots of not so modern things happening. All right. Tell me about them. Okay, so first I want to talk to you, Ryan, about green in Papua New Guinea, green being the environment. Now, Papua New Guinea is a green country, 70% rainforest we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. Papua New Guinea has 5% of the world's biodiversity in that little space. Okay, that's a lot. It has more than 20,000 plant species, 800 species of coral, 600 species of fish and 750 species of birds. What a rich area of the world. That's amazing. And there's so much more to discover. In fact, just this month, this is almost breaking news for the podcast, a new Mm -hmm. discovery of two new birds was made. Uh, And these birds were particularly interesting because they were poisonous birds. What? Is that a thing? Poisonous birds are a thing. They're a rare thing, but they're a thing. So uh, two scientists, Knud Johnson and Kasun Bodawata from the University of Copenhagen, discovered these birds and they say, we managed to identify two new species of poisonous birds on our most recent trip. These birds contain a neurotoxin that they can both tolerate and store in their feathers. Okay, so this is like if you were to eat one, you'd get sick. This isn't they go around biting people and then you die like a snake. No, indeed. They're 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 not not venomous. uh, Aggressive. They're not venomous, but they are poisonous. So if you touch them even, you don't have to eat them. Even as you touch them, the the neurotoxin will affect you. Uh, These birds are called the Regent Whistler and the Rufus Naped Bellbird. Sound lovely, not toxic at all. No, they sound really nice. (laughs) That's incredible. Amazing. It is amazing, isn't it? The, the toxin is called a batrachotoxin, and it's the same type found in those poisonous frogs that you hear about. Yeah. And it can cause violent convulsions and ultimately death. I want to know how these guys found that out. Someone grabbed it, didn't they? Yeah, the poison, the poison doesn't... The poison can cause convulsions and death, but actually, in the amounts that you find in the birds, if you they, the, the things I was reading that, that if you handle it, you get tingling in your hands and you feel not great, but you don't quite keel over and die immediately. So it's not actually I I brushed past a bird and then passed out straight away. So it's not quite as bad as first advertised. But these aren't okay. actually the only poisonous birds in Papua New Guinea. The the first poisonous bird ever discovered is also from the area. This is a bird called the hooded pituhui mm. and it also has this same toxin and they think that all of these birds get their toxin from their diet of beetles so in fact they eat the poison and then store it in their feathers and that means that any form of contact with it gives you a tingling and numbing and you get sneezing and burning sensation as well so if i were to only eat those beetles do you think i would become poisonous too I think the first thing would happen would be you die of the poison. But if you could tolerate the poison, eventually you would become a toxic man if you're not already. (laughs) Yeah, I've been called that. (laughs) But now, obviously, (laughs) but poisonous birds are interesting. And as I say, very new. This is genuinely in April this year, they made this new discovery of these birds. But the the classic iconic bird of the of the country is the bird of paradise which isn't actually one bird either it's there's a bunch of different types of bird of paradise i I couldn't get a final number some see 42 43 up to 45 i saw different species of bird of paradise of which 38 of them can be found in papua new guinea oh right i don't know why i've always thought of them as being a resident of south america no not 
at all. So Papua New Guinea is really the heartland for your bird of paradise. Oh, okay. And the reason they're so iconic for the country, that's why they're on the flag on loads, it's their symbol. The males of the species tend to have really long, elaborate feathers extending from either their wings, their tail or the head. And these are obviously very attractive and um, useful if you want to adorn yourself. And the tribes in Papua New Guinea for a long time have used these feathers for decoration and ritual costume, including one tribe called the Yongom, who knew all about the birds. They would hunt the greater bird of paradise for use in their ceremonial headdresses and they use it in a ritual dance which would mimic the movement of the bird nice and do you know what noise they make birds are always <laughs> yeah, disappointing that's... in their noises because they <laughs> they always look beautiful and then they make a noise like <laughs> <laughs> that's cheered me up thanks <laughs> no problem <laughs> so Anyway, the bird of paradise was hunted by local people, but that's fine. The birds, they could handle that. Small scale hunting, just a few tribes. But unfortunately for the birds, in the mid 19th century, they discovered a much more devastating predator. Posh women. Posh women. Rich women. Yeah. <laughs> tourists? No, not tourists. But uh, we'll understand who it is in a second. But first, we need to go back a bit and then we'll come back up to date. So the, the first birds of paradise came to Europe in the 16th century and five skins of the lesser bird of paradise came back with the Magellan crew in 1522. Although that wasn't, I don't think, from Papua New Guinea. I think that may have been Indonesia. Okay. But more and more birds get brought back and people become interesting. They've got these long, beautiful feathers. They're remarkable cre- looking creatures. But one of the problems that occurred was uh, the as part of the preparation of the skins for trade, what would happen was that the legs of the birds would be removed they'd be cut off okay but the europeans receiving the skins and bodies hadn't realized this so they came to believe that actually this is just how the birds were and they conclude that the birds didn't have any legs and feet and they lived their entire life in the air on the wing never landing <laughs> well, in 1758, Carl Linnaeus published the first scientific description of the greater bird of paradise. He named it Paradisiae Apoda, the footless bird of paradise, which to this very day is its Latin name. So it still hangs in there. Yeah, it's still the footless bird of paradise. <laughs> It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. But um, obviously, this is just a few skins and scientific curiosity. That's still pretty small scale. But what really caused the problem for the birds was hats. What, they had to wear them? No, they became hats was the problem. At the end of the 19th ah. century, there was a big fashion for feathers on hats. And that led to mm. a huge jump in hunting and killing exotic birds to use their feathers, sometimes their bodies as well, for decoration on hats and other items of clothing. Ah, good old humans. At it again. At at it again, yes. And this is where the scale of hunting became really problematic. So in 1897, a naturalist called W.H. Hudson and a British ornithologist saw a sale of 80,000 parrot skins and 1,700 bird of paradise skins. And this was what was known as the plume boom. It ran into the early 20th century (laughs) from 1905 to 1920. Somewhere between 30 and 80,000 bird of paradise skins a year were exported to feather auctions in London, Paris and New York. Isn't that just another way of saying that many birds were killed? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like a more <laughs> polite way of saying that many birds were murdered. <laughs> yes, yes. The, the bird murder was uh, politely referred to as fashion in those days. Yeah. Now, not everyone was happy with the trade. In the UK in 1899, Emily Williamson established the Society for the Protection of Birds and they eventually joined up with the Fur and Feather League in Croydon. No way! Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's uh, the fantastic. These, it's good, isn't it? The merger of these created the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds that we know today. Oh, so what those two all got together and created another char- bigger charity? Uh, yeah, a single bigger charity. And they did work that led to legislation that actually banned the import of feathers in 1921. It's like Marvel's Avengers. Exactly. In America, similar things were happening. People were saying, oh, this isn't okay. This is causing a problem. But legislation aside, what I've seen a lot of people say is the true end of this feathery fashion came not because of the law but just because it's fashion trends changed and a couple of the things that have been ascribed to the decline of the feather trade was one the adoption of the motor car which made long feathers on your hat and big hats quite impractical (laughs) right and another theory is that uh, the fashion for shorter hairstyles meant people had hair that couldn't really sustain a massive hat so hats consequently fell out of fashion as well or big feathery hats fell out of fashion as well well, good. The car situation brought other issues, but, you know. As ever, yes. Uh, unexpected consequences abound. But uh, nevertheless, the trade diminished. And in the 21st century, we know the bird is loved in Papua New Guinea. It's the national symbol. It's on the flag. And it's illegal to sell a bird of paradise in Papua New Guinea. But 
sadly, the trade still goes on. I found one article from 2022 which recounted a tale of two palm cockatoos and 12 birds of paradise being traded out of the boot of an Audi in a car park for $161,000 in cash. <laughs> I don't know where to begin with that. The, the detail of what car it was, or uh, <laughs> the, the horror. Just wanted of to bring the story to life, Ryan. This is uh, some guy flogging slip rare birds out of the back of his boot of his car. It slipped into Top Gear for a minute. <laughs> it was on, it was, had excellent acceleration and uh, acceleration in this case straight to jail because the sale was actually a sting operation and the trader was arrested. Good. What happened to the birds? I could assume the birds were housed safely. And uh, today, though, some species of the bird are officially recognised as endangered. So I guess don't buy exotic birds, people. Leave them to live in birds of paradise in paradise in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, just leave them alone. Leave the birds alone. <laughs> I've got to say, though, you can understand why, right? They are beautiful looking birds, aren't they? Lots of bright colours. And in a world where, you know, your wardrobe is pretty much brown, maybe a bit of beige, to have some bright, sparkly, exotic feathers you can see why you might want to just grab one of those and what's a feather you know the bird doesn't need all those feathers i just want one the classic instance of in and of itself is not bad as long as it's sustainable there's a couple of tribes doing it no no big deal but as soon as a hundred thousand ten million fifty million people in the world want the same thing suddenly we've got a problem plastic feathers oh yeah now we've got plastic problem thanks ryan people will be putting drone propeller fins in their hair steampunk <laughs> steampunk Anyway, I don't know where we're going. Let's move on to the next section, shall we? Let's do that. Okay, bye. Bye. Grandad, what did you do during the war? Oh, young birds of paradise like you don't want to hear about the plume boom. I do, Grandad. I do. Okay then, but let me warn you, it's a tale of terror. It was the beginning of the 20th century. We were happy, living in the jungle, flapping, flying, laying eggs. No idea of what was about to hit us. Then we heard about it. The plume boom, they called it. But it seemed so far away at first, but not for long. Before we knew it, folks started to just disappear. They'd come for us at night. All you'd hear was a sudden squawk and silence. A silence you can never forget. (gasps) Every night we'd wait in terror of the nets, tangles in the darkness, the beat of wings, and the screams of the taken. And the eyes. The thing about a human is he's got lifeless black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he grabs you. And I got grabbed. No! A hand like a pink bird-eating spider appeared out of the gloom, grasping at me. I thought I was a goner as the knife slashed through the darkness. And then, that's when they took my legs. But I still had some fight in me. I flapped and screamed, and somehow, somehow, I managed to fly out of there. Legless but alive. Thousands of others weren't so lucky. Later, they came for us again. That's when I lost my feathers to the humans. I knew their ways by now. I knew where to run, where to hide. Your uncle was not so smart or so lucky. One morning, his favorite branch was just empty, and we all knew what had happened, but nobody dared stay it aloud. But one day, a human woman came walking through the forest, and what I saw that day haunts me every night when I close my eyes. I saw your uncle, what was left of him at least. He was on a hat, and that hat, it was... Tell me, Grandad, please. It was... it was already out of fashion. Okay, Ryan, we've talked about green as uh, the environment. Yeah. And now we're going to talk about green as a signifier for newness and inexperienced. He was very green. He was new at the job. Okay. In 2019, this is our 21st century, a book was published called A Death in the Rainforest by a man named Don Kulik. Right. In this book, he recounts his experiences as a young anthropologist who goes to live and work with a tribe in a tiny remote village in a swamp in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. And he was there to study a death, but not the death you'd expect. He was interested in the death of a language. Oh, okay. Interesting. People lead interesting lives, Pete. We do not. We do not, but uh, we are lucky enough to talk to people who lived interesting lives because I managed to catch up with Don and talk about his book. And, uh, well, I'll let him introduce himself to start. My name is Don Kulik. I'm an anthropologist who does work 
on language and many other topics, but I've been working in Papua New Guinea for over 30 years on the topic of language, specifically language socialization, that is to say how kids learn a language, and also language death. The language that I've worked with for the past 30 years used to have, when I arrived in the mid-1980s, it had about 89 speakers. It today has less than 40. And like many other languages in Papua New Guinea, it's never had more than about 100 speakers. So it's been a consistently tiny languages, and there are lots of those in Papua New Guinea. Right, okay. That's a small amount of people talking one language. Well, we did talk about at the beginning about this having, country having a vast number of languages, and that's why all these hundred people languages dotted around the country. That's incredible. So I, I had to ask the question, how did a 23-year-old Don, this is when he starts in the book, end up travelling on his own to this completely remote village, which is in a swamp, it's in a jungle, it's days travel away from the nearest town. So I asked him, you know, how did this happen? And he told me. The reason I think I became interested in anthropology is largely because I grew up in a white working class prefabricated suburb where everybody was pretty much the same. And I was attracted to anthropology because as I understood it, it was about people who are different than oneself. So for me, it was a curiosity and a desire for difference. Everybody spoke English. Nobody that I knew spoke any other language than English. So it was really boring, very boring, working class, white, um, English-speaking suburb. And when I started to do my PhD, I, well, I discovered anthropology at some point during my undergraduate work, and I discovered that that's a, that's a discipline that actually is about difference. It values difference. It's interested in difference. And that appealed to me. But the language part also appealed to me. So when I started doing my PhD, I realized that Papua New Guinea, that little country, which, which at that point was about 4 million people in the early 1980s, spoke more languages than anywhere else in the world. There were a documented number of about 800 languages spoken by about 4 million people. That's a lot of languages spoken by a very few number of people. And that fascinated me. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And a lot of those languages were not documented. So that kind of appealed to the sort of the Indiana Jones, <laughs> you know, the frontiers person in me, the discovery person. It's like, wow, what does it mean to actually describe a language that hasn't been described? I hadn't realized that, you know, there are, there's actually a lot of those kinds of languages still around, but that was my encounter with them. So I thought to myself, okay, I want to go to Papua New Guinea because it's as different as I can imagine. Very, very different. And also there's these languages, but I don't just want to document a language because I'm interested in the people that speak the languages. And when I went to university, I studied linguistics first. I realized quite quickly that linguists, generally speaking, are not particularly interested in the people who speak languages. They're interested in languages as structures, languages as puzzles, languages as things that you can think about in terms of things like phonetics, the sounds, the morphology, how a language builds words, the syntax, how a language builds sentences and things like that. That's what interests linguists. The people that speak these languages are, for most linguists, they're not really interesting. But those are that's what I was interested in. So I didn't want to describe a language so much as I wanted to see how people are speaking it. And I realized that if there's so many languages being spoken in a place like Papua New Guinea, and if a lot of languages are tiny languages, what is happening to them today? And I thought, well, some of them must probably be dying. And that's what I wanted to study. I wanted to study a language that was dying. That's what I knew. I didn't know very much about Papua New Guinea. I didn't know anything about Papuan languages except what I could read in the grammars. So I traipsed off to Australia, knocked on the door of a linguist who knew the, 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 you know, the general area. And I said, you know, this is my interest. Where do you think I should go? And he very helpfully said, well, there's this little place I know near the mouth of the Sepik River in the north of the country. He said, I've never been there. And I know that very few white people have actually been there because it's really hard to get to. It's, it's in the middle of a swamp. It's just a really, it's not a nice place to go to. When I was doing a mapping exercise in the lower Sepik area 10 years earlier, I met two men from this village. And I learned that these two men, that they told me that their village speaks a language that is not like anything else in the area. And I gathered a word list and I gathered some sentences and I realized that that's very true. This language is not like anything else in the area. It's, it might be an isolate language, which means it's a language that is not related to anything else. They said, why don't you go there? It's a little language. They said there's maybe 70 people in the village. They're the only ones who speak it. Go there and see what's happening. And so I did. That's how I ended up in Gapun. And I basically, you know, I found it. I, I turned up there and I, I spoke 
a little tiny bit of what the, the, the sort of the lingua franca throughout the country, which is called Tokpisin, which is a pidgin language, a Creole language. I turn up in this village with two men who had been instructed by me in English that I wanted to stay and study these people's language. And, you know, that's how I ended up there. And they, these men left me in the men's house there in the village and they turned their you know, turned on their heels and left. And there I was. And the people were very accommodating. They were very they were very curious about why a white stranger should suddenly turn up in their village for no real discernible reason. I mean, you know, they didn't know what a grammar was. The only book they had really ever encountered was the Christian Bible, which they had known since the 1950s. And so this guy turns up in their village and says he wants to, you know, hang out with them and write a book about their language. And they, you know, they just accepted it. And that was foolhardy, really. And I didn't know what I was getting myself into, which was probably just as well, because had I really understood what I was getting myself into, I think I would have paused and thought, you know, more than twice about it. But, you know, there I was and there I just I continued from there. That's a fascinating point, isn't it, about the recklessness of youth? You know, it keeps innovation going. It's a kind of classic, I have no regrets, but looking back on it, wow, that was absolutely bonkers. Yeah. So that's it. He just, just shows up. He's got, there's no hotel, there's no Airbnb. So he just shows up and goes, hello, I'm here to study you. Look after me now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And, the, and they do. What do you bring as a gift? It's like a bottle of wine. Hey, everyone. A little bit more than that, but you can only carry what you can carry. And he was, it was not like mm. he sh shipped up with a Land Rover and a trailer full of stuff, but he did have stuff that he used as gifts for people. But uh, we, we'll talk a bit more about that later. But talking about being looked after, you know, he, he didn't go with carrying his own stuff. He didn't take any of his own food. So he was had to be fed by the village and they did indeed have to look after him. And so we talked about that, the fact that he didn't take any of his own food. Yeah, I didn't bring any food, partly because I didn't know how to bring it to the village because I didn't know where the village was and I didn't know. <laughs> I would have had to have carried it myself and I, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do it because the village is a one hour walk from the nearest waterway through really, really sucking, very fetid swamps. I wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, and also I didn't do it because, you know, eating with people is one of the ways that you form sociality. You can't go to someone's house or someone's, you know, you, you know, want, want, want them to connect with you and say, but I'm not going to eat eat your food that's it's a terrible thing to do so i i wasn't i wasn't planning on and i couldn't have done that but yeah no the, the food was a challenge um you know i mean they it was it's something called sago which sago is made from up the inside of a palm tree and the processing of the sago is an incredibly arduous um chore which i'm amazed that anybody ever figured out how to do it but they make sago and it turns into some kind of like it's a wet cornstarchy kind of thing and they pour boiling water on it and they mix it and it turns into you know something that is very like phlegm it's mucus and you know the first time i ate it i almost vomited because you know i can't think of anything in any kind of western cuisine with the exception perhaps of a raw oyster but a raw oyster is like a contained entity this is like eating a ribbon of phlegm you know, some of it is in your in the front of your mouth and some of it is dropping is dropping down your gullet. It was hard. It was difficult. And it always, you know, I got used to it because what what choice did I have? But it was that was not easy. Um, the, and that's their that's their prestige food. That's the thing that when a guest comes and they want to impress the guest, that's what they serve. So that's what I got all the time, obviously. So it was yeah, it was hard. I mean, the food was difficult for the first couple months and then of course I you know you get used to anything so I ate it but I never really enjoyed it that's hilarious this does <laughs> remind me of another green which is going green when you're faced with something that you don't like the look of and I have to say that that's not the only tale in the book that he wrote of disturbing culinary adventures I won't uh, talk about the brushed turkey eggs that he encounters but I do suggest you read the book to find out okay where would I find the book uh, all good bookshops Amazon and other sites are available but you, you can't argue with the point that the, these people just looked after him and fed him and gave him a place to stay it wasn't like they were equipped for that kind thing and part of the reason for that is the conclusions that they'd come to as to why this strange white man would suddenly appear in their village out of the blue and then weirdly just start hanging around observing and the way they came to an accommodation with what this guy was all about was they concluded that he was in fact a ghost that he, he was specifically a dead villager a specific dead villager that they knew who'd come back to help the village and uh, and that's how they processed what was this guy and why was he here and what was he doing and we talked mm. a bit about how they came to this conclusion that he, he was in fact a dead villager you know the thing about them is that they're not 
primitive. They're very, very savvy, and they want to figure things out. They're figuring it out. They're presented with bits and pieces of information. They're presented with the knowledge that white people suddenly appeared in their country. Who knows why? Who knows how? White people have money. White people have clothes. White people have outboard motors. White people have airplanes. White people have ships. How did they get this stuff? How did they get it? That's the mystery. And so they're trying to figure this all out. And they, they have myths that, you know, that there were two brothers. That one of them, you know, thought he killed the other one. And the, the one, the smart one, the one who was, who say, the, the stupid brother thought that he killed, he sailed over the sea. He sailed over the sea. And he sailed with beings that he made from sago pith, which, are, which is very pale. So this very smart Papua New Guinean brother left Papua New Guinea with white beings. Okay, so white beings come back. They come back. So what they're thinking is that, wait, white people have their origin in Papua New Guinea. But what they realize, because we come, you know, white people have so much stuff, is that somehow Papua New Guinea has been left behind. Because we were left in the care of the dumb brother. And, you know, the dumb brother made us and we're black. And the smart brother, who also was black, but he made these beings. And, the, and so anyway, so it's a, complicated, it's a complicated cosmology. And so, you know, white people come and also missionaries come and they, they spread the word of God in Christianity, which in itself, you know, grant whatever you think of Christianity, you have to admit that it's a very kind of complex and quite bizarre cosmology. So they conclude in trying to figure this out that, OK, what happens is when they die, they go to Rome which is where God lives, with Mary and Jesus and the Pope, because they were, you know, missionized by Catholics. So the Pope had a, a role to play in all this. So they, they die and they go to Rome. They go to school and they turn white. So when they die, they, they, they become white. And then some of the Papua New Guinea, some of their relatives really want to come back and help the villagers. They already had, had you know, they had this framework. And it's not a primitive, stupid framework. It's actually a very clever and complicated framework. And they fit me in. So they ask themselves, okay, why does this random white person turn up in our village? Not another village, not that village over there. Not that one over there, not that one over there. He came to us. Why did he come to us? And they thought about it and they concluded that I was, you know, I was a dead villager who had returned to help them. And they knew exactly who I was. They told me exactly who I was. And I was chilled. I thought it was a chilling thing for them to say um, that, you know, you're really dead. I thought, God, am I a ghoul or a zombie? I mean, it's like, you know what? And I didn't know how they would respond. I didn't know how they would actually treat me thinking that I was a, a ghost, basically. It turned out that they treated me fabulously. Well, I came in 1985 the first time. That's when they told me. I came back the last time in 2019, and they still, you know, it's like, it's like that's still, I'm a, I'm a useless ghost. I'm a useless spirit because I've never given them exactly what they want, which is they, they want the cargo that white people all, all have. And I think they've kind of given up on me because I'm completely useless. I think that they think I'm really stupid. I think that at first they thought I was too young to understand how to how to bring it all to them. And now I think that they think I'm just stupid. I just am just thick. But, you know, the, the thing that is, is difficult to get people to understand is that this is not just a, it's not a, you know, a primitive belief system. It's a very, very savvy and complex and well thought out explanation, given the evidence that they have, they, fig they think they figured it out. Wow. How about that, eh? Wow, that's incredible. Like, you can see the logic and how it plays out. But how weird for him to be considered dead and the way that know, people and look at him and treat him because they really do genuinely think he is dead. I guess they've accommodated it well because they, they treat him really well, as he described. Well, yeah, you don't want to mess around with the afterlife, do you? Yeah, and it's interesting because when he explains the cosmology to you and how they came to that conclusion, you kind of go, actually, that in and of itself does make sense. It's a plausible conclusion to draw, isn't it? Are you sure they didn't just ask him whether or not he was a boy or a ghoul? Oh, God. <laughs> So anyway, uh, despite being dead, it didn't really hold him back. Uh, over decades and several different villages, Don stayed with the villagers to learn their language and to understand why their language is called tie-up is not being transmitted to the younger generation. And his, his conclusions are pretty complex, but I asked him to try and summarise them for us as, as far as he can. 
as a result of Western colonialism, capitalism, and Christianity that arrived in, in, in this area in the early 1900s, and with, you know, a sort of a force after World War II, people wanted to get they wanted to get what white people, and they still want to get what white people have. And they basically in this village don't understand why they don't have it. Their question that they ask is, why do white people have all this stuff? And why don't we? And one of the reasons that they've concluded is that white people have have contact with stronger deity. So they, without very much hesitation at all, gave up all of their traditional culture, just abandoned it, just said it doesn't work. Ours doesn't work. Yours works. At the same time, of course, missions were, you know, missionaries were visiting the village not very often. But when they came, they said, you know, if you guys become Christian, you're going to get this stuff. You're going to get the kingdom of God. And they took it literally. They thought that, all right, well, we're, you guys have a, you have a direct line to all this stuff that you got. And so they abandoned it. And the language is a part of that. So they, in order to become more like white people, one of the things that they fastened on, unsurprisingly, was the language that they took white people to speak, which was, they thought, Tokpisin. And they're not entirely wrong because Tokpisin came to Papua New Guinea as a result of colonial plantations. And they didn't give up their language because they thought their language was ugly or unattractive or useless. And in fact, you know, one of my main arguments is that they did this without really realizing they were doing it. So that's it. The broad story is that some villagers get work on plantations and similar where the bosses speak Tokpisin and there's no common language between the workers. So Tokpisin becomes the lingua franca there. They go home and talk Tokpisin, which is then something impressive. It's the language of sophistication. Uh, and they want to pass it on to their children as well to give them that sophistication and also prepare them for future work. So there's obviously more to it than that. And you re I really recommend you read the book. It's a thoroughly, thoroughly entertaining read as well. I really enjoyed it. But in the final analysis, Don thinks the tie-up language will be extinct in about 30 years or so and that's why he's dedicated quite significant portions of his life to recording the language and the stories of that people so that it can in some way be preserved amazing stuff honestly don was fascinating company we talked for over an hour so you got a brief snippet of it I've, i could have gone on for much longer the guy was really really interesting and he's got a great passion for what he did but you probably aren't going to be able to talk to him for hours and hours and hours so do read his book it's called a death in the rainforest by don kulik uh, and it definitely gets the history happened everywhere thumbs up and do we have a recording of what the language sounds like actually yes recording it was part of what don was doing and he kindly shared a snippet of the tie-up language with me and you can have a listen now Well, Peter, fantastic. How about that? You did a great job. I really want to thank Don for coming along and sharing his knowledge and wisdom and experiences. Yeah, he was a fascinating guy. What he did was absolutely incredible. Well, cheers, Don, and cheers to you, Petey. Well done. Thanks, Ryan. But now the audience turns their beady eyes towards me. It's my episode next, so why don't we roll out the doors later? Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you aware of the date of the next podcast? No, no, I am not. It's May the 4th. Oh, oh, well, you know what that means? It means... It's Star Wars Celebration Day! Absolutely, and for the Dursleys amongst us, Star Wars Day because may the 4th be with you. May the 4th be with you. Star Wars Day. So, Ryan, I've tampered with the Dursleator, I've fixed the place, so it's the Star Wars Galaxy, and I've thrown in okay. some exciting times and topics that might be appropriate. Rise of the Dursleator. <laughs> So, your place, as we said, is the Star Wars Galaxy. Are you ready for your time? Yes, Master. <laughs> your time is... <laughs> it's the High Republic, whatever that is. Right. Familiar I am with this. <laughs> good, because I have no idea. Are you ready for your topic? I am, yeah. What's the topic? Please be good, please be good, please be good. Your topic is... <laughs> wood. Oh, right. So in our futuristic sci-fi world, I'm looking for wood. Sticks and other St wooden items. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Come on, you'll find wood somewhere, I'm sure of it. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Journey of discovery. I'm sure you'll come back packed with fact. I need a new hope. <laughs> oh, dear. Pete, I love you.
I know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you are. That is the show for this week. So thank you all for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that Pete's talked about on this show, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. If you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you can find us at hhepodcast. And if you subscribe to those, you'll get an alert every time we post extra content. We use facts we didn't use, photos from the show, other bits and bobs that pop up. That's right. And we're going to be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Peter. Thanks to you, Ryan. And to Don. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. So, you know Don? Don the anthropologist? Yeah, that guy. Well, what about him? Well, I want to be like him. Oh, so you're going to go to university and study for years and years and years like him? What? No. Okay, so you're going to travel to remote places and learn tribal languages like he did? Lord, no. Okay, so what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to travel the world explaining why their behaviour isn't really so bad, that they're just misunderstood and should be given a second chance. What? Who? The, the people of Papua New Guinea? No, the ants. The ants? Yeah. But why? Well, because I want to be an anthropologist, just like Don. Ryan, you're in it. Peety-peety-poopy-pants, where are you?